0: tonight is Romans 8, actually Romans 8, 9, and 10. So it's going to be a challenge tonight to get through that. I'll do my best. Uh, This is one of those issues where there are differences among Christians. There's a lot of issues like that in in the Bible. Uh, The gospel is clear. Christians believe the gospel and trust Christ for our salvation. It's clear that Jesus is God. There are certain truths that are clear in the Scripture and that make one a Christian or not. When we're studying the doctrine of election, this is one of the issues in the Bible that has historically been debated. And you've had good Christians have different ideas about it. So uh, it's one of those issues, really like any issue, we should approach with humility. But here's, the, here's what I think with, with the doctrine of election particularly you, you, you want to look at the Bible and search the Scripture. That's the key thing, really, for any issue. You need to look at the Bible and let the Bible convince you of what it says. Voltaire was, uh, from my view, an infamous Christian scoffer. He was an atheist um, and denied Christianity. And one of, the ways he, one of the ways he criticized Christianity was by saying God made man in his image and man has continued to return the favor. And what he meant by that was, in his view, people were trying to make God to be the way they wanted him to be, to conform to what they thought God should be like or to do what they thought God should do. And so he used that as a critique, and obviously that's not what we want to do. One of the the great things, and I think about being a Baptist, and it really should be true of a Christian, but it's true of a Christian and particularly true of a Baptist, is we believe the Bible to be the Word of God. We want the Word of God to inform and drive and support everything we believe. And that's why, especially with this issue, you want to look at Scripture. This is also one of those issues that I think you follow the principle in Scripture of not going beyond what is written. And so I may do that some tonight, and you can judge for yourself. I don't want to do that, though. But when you study the Bible, you're going to be faced with some conundrums. You're going to be faced with some conundrums. Like Charlie has asked lots of times about the Trinity. If you study and believe what the Bible says about the Trinity, the Bible is not going to answer all your questions about that. And, and to the human mind, there are some conundrums that come with seeing and believing what the Bible says about the Trinity. This is true of the incarnation, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. There are mysteries about that. It's also true of election and predestination. It's true of the providence of God, how God rules over all things. These create challenges to our thinking. And the reality is the Bible just simply does not answer all the questions. But what it does say, that's what we want to strive to base our belief on. So let's jump into Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, a very familiar verse. One of the things I would say, about, first of all, about these issues is, in, in my experience and in my view the doctrine of election is something that has been neglected in our study of the Bible. And I think it's been neglected because it's hard to wrap your mind around. That's not a reason not to study it. Uh, but I know in my growing up, I never heard about election. Uh, and I, I, I was confronted with it when I was doing my own Bible reading. Uh, and essentially what I, I said was, well, I'll come back to this later. I don't understand that. But at some point, you've got to wrestle with the Bible. Look at Romans 8:28. My point is this: many of us know Romans 8:28, and it is an amazing promise. This is a great promise, and I don't, I'm not diminishing that. We know Romans 8:28, but a lot of people don't know Romans 8:29 and 30 as well. Uh, and, and the reality is, most of us know salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, which is an, in, an essential truth, and a truth the Bible emphasizes. We know that we must repent and believe. But do you know that you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world? The Bible also says that. I think that's been neglected. We want to look at what the Bible says. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. An amazing promise to give us comfort as Christians, knowing that God is working everything together for our good. Now look at the next verse. What is the first word in the next verse? 4. For. The next two verses explain why Romans 8.28 is true. And the reason why Paul the Apostle is writing about this right here in Romans 8 is to encourage Christians in suffering. And that's why we again, like we said last week, the point of the doctrine of election and predestination in the Bible is almost always to encourage Christians. You who have believed the gospel, you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, here is an encouragement for your faith particularly in the context of suffering, which is what the rest of Romans 8 is going to be about. But notice how he sets it up. Romans eight twenty 4. And here's the reason why Romans eight twenty eight is true. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified... He also glorified. Now, notice there the first word. This has been known as the golden chain of salvation. We're talking about what God has done. And and again, when we're thinking about these issues, I find it helpful. And as we study the issues of salvation, some of the issues of salvation in the Bible are presented from God's perspective. Here's what God did. Here's how God sees things. That is the, the case for the doctrine of election and predestination. This is something God did. Some of the doctrines of salvation are presented from our perspective, like the commands to repent and believe. These are things that that we experience, and we must repent and believe. This one tonight is from God's perspective. Keep that in mind. And notice the first thing he says there is, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, one of the things that's happened is people who want to be honest with the Bible recognize the Bible teaches election and predestination, so they have to try to explain it. And the most common explanation, at least in recent history, that's been offered for this issue is God foreknew what you would do. God foreknew that you would choose Christ, and then based on that, God elected you. Okay, that's a common explanation for this teaching. It's an explanation that I've heard from a lot of people, and I think there's a lot of problems with that explanation. Let me show you what they are. First of all, that is not what the word foreknowledge means. Now, it may sound like, when we say foreknowledge, that may, may sound what, like what it means, but I'm going to show you in just a second that's not what it means. Secondly, we know that God knows all things. This is one of the things the Bible teaches about God, which is true. God knows all things. But on your sheet, this is a misunderstanding of the word foreknowledge. Now, early in the book of Genesis, Genesis 4.1, the Bible says Adam knew his wife. And I think we all know what that means. The word know is used to refer to a relationship. A relationship. Now, go to 1 Peter, and let me show you how Peter uses this word. And let me show you why I think this is the right understanding of foreknowledge. 1 Peter one. And verse 2, actually verse 1, 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So here you've got Peter calling them elect. And then look what he goes on to say. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of his blood. First of all, I'll just show you very clearly there that, that foreknowledge and sanctification and election doesn't forego the, the, the essential place of obedience. But notice here, and so the idea would be, okay, they're elect according to foreknowledge. And, and people would define this as, you know, God looked through time, he saw what you were going to do, and based on what you do, he chose you. But if you read on in 1 Peter 1, drop down to verse 20, and here you find the word foreknowledge again, and here the meaning of the word is clear. 1 Peter 1.20, is talking about Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, what's that talking about? That's talking about God's relationship with Jesus before the foundation of the world. And you see, it's described with the word foreknowledge. It means God was in a relationship with him before the world began. That's what foreknowledge means. Now, back to Romans 8. That's even in this text. Not only is that what the word means and the best understanding of the word here, that's even in Romans 8 29. Look at it there. For those whom he foreknew. Do you see it there? It's talking about people. It's talking about people that God knew, that God had a relationship with. And it's those people that he predestined. And then notice the rest of verse 29 those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Now, what that means is everyone who was known eventually is glorified. The point of this is going to be no matter what you go through in suffering, you will be saved. Keep in mind, this is written to Christians. This is written to people like us who have believed the gospel. And the point of it is very practical in the fact that because of what God did, number one, everything works together for your good, Romans eight twenty eight. This is because of God's relationship with you. And furthermore, you will be glorified. There is not one person who is called that will not be glorified. And, and this is an incredible encouragement to Christians, which the rest of the chapter goes on to show you. Look, let's, let's read on. Verse 31, what, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, do you see why he would say that? Based on what was just written. If this is true, who in the world can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The point is, if God gave his own son for you, if God did this to his son for you, he is going to see you through. Now keep reading. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Do you see the point here? Nobody can bring a charge or a condemnation against one of God's elect. And again, we shouldn't be shy about using words like elect that the Bible uses. Now they create mental conundrums. And we'll deal with those as much time as we have. But it's a Bible word, and it's an, in, it's an encouragement to you as a Christian to know that you will not be condemned. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. Nobody can condemn you. Also, nobody can separate you. All right, now back to your sheet. And back to the common explanation of foreknowledge, which, again, the election and predestination are in the Bible. You've got to explain them somehow common explanation is, well, God saw what you were going to do, and based on what you were going to do, God chose you. Number two, that definition or explanation of foreknowledge is offered because it alleviates some of the difficult questions prompted by the the doctrine of election. I don't think that explanation is found in the Bible. That's the problem with it, okay? I think what it does is it makes very challenging things that we're going to look at tonight that I don't have all the answers for. It makes them a lot easier to swallow, Uh, Like, for instance, questions of fairness. Well, why would God choose some? Or questions of justice. How can God find fault in those he doesn't choose? But we're going to see those questions are answered in Romans 9. The The next point is really important, especially in light of what we talked about last week. This understanding of foreknowledge would make God's election based on your choice, which is not what Ephesians 1 says. If you remember back to Ephesians 1, election is based on what? The purpose of God and the grace of God. You can find that three times it says it in Ephesians 1. It's according to his purpose. It's according to his grace. It's, not, it, it's based on mercy. Um, all right, let's move on to Romans 9, which incidentally is probably the most challenging chapter of the Bible. Um, keep in mind, Romans is talking about salvation, and just the amazing, the amazing news of the gospel has come. Romans Romans 1 through 3 shows how everybody's a sinner, essentially, so Paul makes clear everybody's unsaved. Then Romans 3 and 4 shows you how you get saved, and it's by faith in Christ. You're made righteous. Romans 5, 6, and 7 show you how you interact with sin and the word of God and struggle with sin, which is a real issue in every believer's life, right? Right? Romans 8 gives you encouragement in the fact that you have the Holy Spirit and in the fact that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Now, what, why is it that nothing can separate you from the love of God? It's because you were foreknown, you were predestined, you were called. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Now, here is where it gets really jarring for the Jew. Because who is the elect people in the Old Testament? The Jews. They are the chosen people of God, right? Abraham. God chose Abraham. God chose David. Incidentally, election is all through the Old Testament. and uh, We're going to see here, election is not based on what they did, it's based on God's love for them. So what do you think a Jew is going to think when you start bringing in Gentiles and saying Gentiles are elect? That's what Romans 9 is about. And then you know what Romans 10 is going to be about? So, so as we're looking at Romans 9, keep in mind Romans 10 is about the fact that anyone who believes can be saved. So keep that in your mind, because you know, I think most of us, we know that and believe that, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But Romans 9 is also in the Bible. And what Paul is going to show you is how Gentiles, like every one of us in this room, can be the elect of God. How is that possible? Well, that's what Romans 9 addresses, because this book is about salvation, and it's, it's also about how Gentiles, non-Jews, can be saved. It's not an issue for us in 2018, but in the first century, that was a huge issue. Look what he goes on to say. Let's pick it up in Romans 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen." You see, Paul has a sincere affection for the Jews because he's one of them. But look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now keep in mind, that, this is the key to understanding this chapter, that verse right there. And this is the point he's trying to make. How is a person elect? It's not because of your descent from Israel. Now, you know, we have this in Baptist world as well. People think they're believers because their parents are believers. That is not the case. People think they're Christians because their grandparents... I had a drunk guy tell me he was a Christian because his grandpa was a Baptist deacon. That is not the case. Look what he says here. All... For all... I'm sorry. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Verse 7. Well, who is it then? Who are the people of God? That's the question. And how can Gentiles be part of them? Verse 7, and not all the the children of Abraham, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And here we recall uh, Isaac. Now the point here is, not all Israel is Israel. Just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham does not make you elect. That's what, he's, that's what he's pointing out here first. And he gives the example of Isaac. It's through Isaac, right? Now, did, did Abraham have another child before Isaac? Yes. Ishmael. But here's the promise from God. It's through Isaac. It's through Isaac. And that, this is where Israel comes from. This is where Jesus Christ comes from. It's through Isaac. The point here being, just because you're a descendant of Abraham does not make you one of God's people. That is not how how you become one of the people of God. That's the point here so far. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, do you see that there? Here's who the people of God are, the children of the promise. Well, who is that? We're going to find out in a minute. Verse 9. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So first of all, he uses this example of Isaac and says just because to point out, just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't mean you're one of God's people it's the children of promise then he uses another example and this one gets stronger and again this is where that other view of foreknowledge gets totally deactivated this this idea of of i get the names confused i'm sorry rebecca and rebecca has two sons verse 10 when rebecca had conceived children by one man our forefather Isaac so these are descendants of Isaac Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Now that's a key phrase in understanding what we're talking about here. It's not based on anything they do. As you know, salvation is not based on works. This is before they were born. Why does God choose Jacob and not Esau? Why does God choose Jacob and not Esau? It's before. It's not based on something they do. Incidentally, what does the Genesis account show you? Does the Genesis account show you that Jacob is such a good guy and then based on how good Jacob is, God chooses him? No. This is why the Bible shows you how bad Jacob is. In fact, his name means deceiver. In fact, if we were choosing, kind of like, I, uh, I get the names mixed up, Jacob, who's the strongest one of the two? Esau. Esau is the man's man. Esau is the hunter. He's the tough guy. Jacob is kind of a wimp and and is a deceiver why would God choose Jacob over Esau before they had done anything good or bad this verse tells you in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls now do you see how he stumbles over himself to say it's not based on any work that they do it's based on God who calls it's based on God's purpose it's based on God's purpose she was told the older will serve the younger, which we know is counterintuitive. And now here's a, a clincher, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. I'm not sure if Paul is doing something here, but let me, let me show you this. Twice he's quoted Genesis. He quoted Genesis with, with Isaac, and now he quoted Genesis with Jacob. And you know where this next quotation comes from, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? It comes from Malachi. So he quotes Genesis, and he quotes Malachi, which bracket the Bible. He's quoted from the first book, and now he's quoted from the last book. And the last quote is rugged, isn't it? And this, friends, is again where you've got to wrestle with the Bible, and I would just encourage you, we've got to try to base what we believe on what the Bible says. My task up here is not to give you my opinions or my views. My task is to do the best I can to show you what the Bible says. And the Bible says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That's just what it says. And I'll just tell you this, and you, can, you need to do your own study, but any kind of like softening or watering down of the word hatred will not work, because the word means what it says. Now, do you see how this creates conundrums and difficulties? Absolutely. In fact, what is the first conundrum or difficulty it causes? Okay, if God, if God does this so his purpose will stand before they've done anything good or bad, before they're born, he loves Jacob, the first counter to that would be, well, that's not fair. Which makes a lot of sense to our minds, doesn't it? That's the first counter to that. Now, one of the reasons I believe what I'm teaching you is the right understanding of this is that is the very next question Paul addresses. Why would he address this question if this weren't the right understanding of what he just said? Because look what he goes on to say here in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Because if you read Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, you, could, you would logically conclude, well, that's just unjust. Because it would certainly be unjust of me as a person to treat people like that. So this is a question he's going to answer here. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And here's why. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends on not human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So, then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, the question is, does God, is there injustice on God's part? Is this unfair? And do you see how he answers him? Mercy. Mercy. There's the answer to the question about God's fairness. And this is again where you've got to wrestle with the scripture, but I hope you can see this. He emphasizes the mercy of God. Why does he emphasize the mercy of God in loving Jacob and hating Esau? How does that emphasize mercy? Well, let me ask you this. Did God have to love either one of them? Is Jacob lovable? By his life, it sure doesn't seem so. But God loves him. And why why Jacob and not Esau? Because God can have mercy on whomever he will. It's God's prerogative. And again, it's not my place to tell God what he can do and what he can't do. But one thing I want you to see here is this magnifies mercy. This is where election is an issue of mercy. It's not an issue of justice. It's not an issue of Fairness. It's an issue of mercy. Because here's what the Bible teaches, and this is what I think everybody can agree on. Everybody is a sinner, and because of that sin, everybody's condemned. And this is where election is about mercy, and God will have mercy on some. Does He have to do that? No. Does He do that? Yes. Whenever um, Gerald Ford became president, one of his first actions, and probably the most probably the most controversial thing Gerald Ford ever did was he pardoned Nixon. Nixon had committed a crime. Nixon was likely going to jail. Nixon's cronies went to jail, like Chuck Colson and some of the others. And Ford gets appointed president. Ford didn't think it would be good for the interests of the country, for the president, a former president to be in jail. So the first thing he does is he, pres- he, he pardons Nixon. And Gerald Ford recounts that he got more hate mail and more anger directed to him for that than anything else he did in his presidency. Why do you think people hated him for that? Or why do you think people criticized him for that? Because Nixon was guilty. Right? Doesn't that make sense? Nixon was guilty. Did Nixon deserve what he got in being pardoned? No. He didn't. Or have have you ever had anybody come up to you if you're talking about the gospel and say, everybody should be in hell? Nobody says that. Nobody says that and my point is we love to focus on mercy and that's what this chapter is focusing on about Christians. Now again, I would remind you this doesn't in any way contradict Romans 10 which is coming up in just a minute. So hold, fa- hold on. Let me give you another example. This is a little grotesque. Let's say 10, ten young men, teenagers, plot To kill your teenage son. Ten young men plot to kill your teenage son and they carry that out. And they are arrested and put on trial. Obviously, this is an illustration. There's all this grief, there's all this terrible stuff that happens. One of those murderers repents and genuinely recognizes this was wrong of me to do this. And then the parent of the murdered son, adopts that murderer. Adopts them. Says, well, you can be my son now. What would people say about that woman? Would she say, she is so cruel? No, they would be astounded by... That would be, that's, that's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous scenario. It's ridiculous because how in the world could she show that kind of mercy and adopt that murderer? Well, you understand, friends, all of us are guilty of sin. And... All sin makes one guilty, like uh, James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point is guilty of it all. So you understand every one of us who've ever committed any sin are guilty of murder before God. That doesn't mean in life we actually committed it or we face the consequences in life, but before a holy God we're guilty. And here's what God does for guilty people. And incidentally, we remember it was people like that centurion at the cross who put Jesus to death and then later the centurion recognizes surely this was the son of God now we're not going to indict God for being merciful to this Roman that's what this chapter is about it's focusing on mercy now the next conundrum or challenge to this would be okay if God loved Jacob hated Esau God's purpose of election, this is why he did it. How can he find fault with Esau? Right? One of the things the Bible clearly teaches is that all of us are guilty for our sins. Now, now do you see where some of these conundrums come in? And Paul's about to address that question. You, You see how that's just a natural line of thinking. Well, how in the world can we find Esau guilty? If this is before they do anything good or bad. And look what he goes on to say. He does not answer this question. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? See, he doesn't answer this question. He essentially just says God can do as he pleases. It's not in our prerogative or place to question God in what he does. And then he gives the example of the potter from the book of Jeremiah. Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make Out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God? And essentially the what if God question is, who can challenge this? Who can can challenge or question what God does? What if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory? That essentially, again, magnifying the mercy of God. Now look at what he goes on to say, and here's the clincher. Verse 24, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So the issue is, who are the people of God? One perspective from God's perspective is the people of God are the elect. And election is based on God's purpose and God's mercy. And guess what, Jews? God chose to have mercy on Gentiles. That's the point of Romans 8, I'm sorry, 9, is to magnify God's mercy and show, here's one of the reasons, among others, this is not the only perspective on salvation, okay? This is just one, and I think the most challenging one. But the point is, in the book of Romans, Gentiles can be saved too. Gentiles can be considered the elect of God. Why? Well, not because of anything in them but because of God. Now, let's pick it up in Romans 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Okay, now who's he talking about here? He's talking about Jews who don't believe the gospel, which by the way, in his day and time, were most of the Jews. Is Paul's desire to see them saved affected by what he just said about God's election? No because that's from our perspective. This is why we want to see everyone saved, right? We want to see everyone saved. And Romans 10 is going to go on to say, you'll see in just a minute, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's true as well. This is why one of the most important things about in your study of election is not to come to the conclusion, well, this contradicts the necessity of believing the gospel or having faith. Because you've got Romans nine, which is the strongest chapter in the Bible on election, Followed by Romans 10, which is the strongest chapter on the Bible, on anyone who believes will be saved and the gospel needs to go to everyone. So I would just say, based on Romans 9 and 10, to be a consistent Christian, I think you have to believe both. And here's the challenge. I don't think you can explain how both of those are fully compatible. This is where you can't go beyond what the Bible says. But also as Christians, we shouldn't neglect one that is more difficult for the other, which is easier. We want to seek to study and try to understand all the Bible because it tells us about God. Now, 10.1, Paul is zealous to see them saved. There, have been, there were Baptists in England. By the way, in the 1600s, every Baptist believed this about election. Just about, I mean, every Baptist, to my knowledge, in England believed this about election. And there were some Baptists that, because of their belief, came to the wrong conclusion... That, well, you know, if this is true, God will save the, the heathen nations. Like tonight, we have a birthday party for one of our missionaries. And, and the wrong conclusion reached by some Baptists was, well, you know, if God wants to save them, he'll do it. That's wrong. Because Romans 10 sh- shows that apart from the hearing of the gospel and apart from us taking them the gospel, they won't be saved. My point here is this Paul's zeal is not diminished by what he just wrote in Romans 9. Let's continue on. Um, I'm sorry. Let's go to verse 8, Romans ten eight. This is one you all know. Probably. This is probably... My preacher growing up quoted this verse more than any, I would bet. But what does it say? That's talking about the Bible. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's pretty clear, isn't it? You confess, you believe, you'll be saved. All right. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 9 and Romans 10 are addressing two different issues and they are not contradictory to one another. All right. Let me try to take, take some questions then I'll, I'll finish up the last little part here. Any, any questions on that? It's challenging stuff. Mind-boggling. One thing I hope you see, I put you some cross-references in there f- to Ephesians and 2 Thessalonians is, what the Bible says about election, and it says some clear things, does not contradict the necessity of believing or repenting. All right, now let me talk about free will for a minute, because this always comes up, or usually comes up. Here are some challenges when you talk about free will. Number one, people have defined it totally differently, or they've defined it differently throughout history. And you know what? If you go to the Bible, the Bible doesn't really define free will. In fact, the Bible says almost nothing about free will, which makes it challenging to deal with if you're trying to deal with stuff from a biblical perspective. So when you talk about this, it's important to establish what a person means by it. Now, I just want to offer you some some warnings and some problems that I've seen and experienced in my life. I essentially grew up as a free will Baptist. I grew up in the circle of Baptists that emphasize free will. I know Baptists that absolutely think predestination and election is absolutely contra-biblical, even though the Bible talks about it. So that, that's my background. So you have to judge for yourself if I'm reacting a little bit against my background. But I've heard a lot about free will. And I just want to give you some kind of boundaries or some things for you to think about because you'll, you'll find a lot of people when they talk about salvation talk about free will. First of all, you want to go to the Bible. But here are some of my warnings. The scripture points to God as the reason for our salvation, not our free will. That's my first warning. Whatever you believe about free will... I don't think biblically you should look at it as the reason why you're saved. You always want the reason you're saved to be the mercy of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God. It's God's work. Go to John 1. John 1. Notice the word reason. If a person defines free will as... The ability to make decisions that matter, I'm totally, okay, yes, I believe that's true. We have the ability to make decisions, and they have consequences, and they matter. If someone defines free will like that, I'm fine. What I, what I don't, what, what I sh- I'm challenged by, what I think is wrong, and what I think you need to struggle with, is when a person points to their free will as the reason why they're saved, which quite frankly is common. Again, it doesn't matter what I think, what does the Bible say? John 1, verses 12 and 13. This is the gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. But to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now look at what that says. It's talking about those who received him, those who believed in his name. Now that would be salvation from our perspective, you must receive Jesus to be saved. You must believe in his name to be saved. Now he's talking about people like us who have received Jesus and believed in him. Now the next verse he's going to explain how they were saved. Look at the next verse. This is John 1:13. Who were born not of blood. So we're not talking about physical birth. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And do you see my concern here? When we talk about salvation, we want to say, I'm saved, sure, because I believed in Jesus, because I received him, but I was born not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. You always want the reason for your salvation to be God. Um. Back to Romans nine, because I, I want to point this out to you. Romans nine, again, where he's explaining mercy. Romans 9:16. After he says, "I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy," so then it that's election depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The next thing I think you'll find all through the Bible is that, and this is my other concern about free whatever you believe about free will, you don't want it as the reason you're saved, and you don't want to be exalting it. Search the scripture and see if the scripture exalts man's free will. That will make the case for, for, for you, I think. But you always, the Bible, particularly the New Testament, speaks over and over again of being saved in such a way in that who is glorified. Like Romans 9, it points to the mercy of God. The Bible, all through its pages, exalts God as the author of salvation. You want to be praising God for your salvation. This is why when when Tommy Nelson taught through Romans 9, at one point he said, you know, you just need to stop and worship God and exalt God for your salvation. One of the clearest places you can see this, I put on your sheet there, this when you find the Bible talking about salvation, it always speaks of God as the subject or the author. This does not mean our faith or repentance is not essential. Okay? The two are not contradictory, but you will find that God is the reason you're saved. And he's the one praised for your salvation. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30 speaks of our salvation, and it says, It is because of him you are in Christ. And the him there is God. I don't ever want to be saying that it's because of me or my free will decision. That's not the reason I'm saved. Now again, if free will means I'm guilty and I have decisions that I've made and they're real and I'm guilt and I bear the burden of them, yeah, I, I think the Bible teaches that. The next point on your sheet hopefully you know why I'm trying to clarify this. The scripture makes clear that we are responsible for our choices and sins. Now, this is important. This gets to the issue of you do not, the Bible, in my view, does not use election and predestinations as reasons people do not believe, okay? Election and predestination are about God's mercy and they're all, it's always spoken to believers, usually in the context of encouraging them. It doesn't say people are predestined to hell. The Bible doesn't ever use that language, that word, or the doctrine of election in connection to that. But you know, what people do is they reason, well, if, okay, if, I'm, if I believe Jesus and the Bible says I'm chosen from before the foundation of the world, what does that mean about other people? People reason that way. I don't think the Bible reasons that way. I don't think you'll find that reasoning in the Bible. But here's what the Bible does say. It says people who go to hell, go to hell. Do you know why? Because of their rejection of the truth. Their rejection of God and their rejection of the gospel. That's the reason people go to hell. It's because of their sin and their rejection. It's not because God predestined them to go there. I think that's what the Bible consistently teaches. And this is where you've got to be careful in, in seeing, well, if the Bible teaches this, well, then this must be true. Which incidentally is why a lot of people reject election. A lot of people reject election because they say, well, if that's true, then it doesn't matter if you do evangelism. But again, look at Romans 10. How can they hear without someone preaching? How can they believe if they don't hear? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That is a false conclusion. Now, I can't tell you exactly how the two all come together and are compatible, but I can tell you for those who have believed in Christ, are foreknown, predestined, called justified, glorified, and who can bring a charge against God's elect. And that should be good news for every Christian. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And don't you see why? But I also can look at Romans 10 and the rest of the New Testament, and you can look at the passion of Paul in calling people to repent and believe. Like Paul before Agrippa. When Paul is on trial before Agrippa, he says, I would the God, that you were like me, and he means to be a believer, except for these chains. Paul has earnest desire to see Agrippa, this unbeliever, believe the gospel and be saved. That's all I got. It's the best I can do. If you study the Bible, and the point of this class, we're studying uh, how the Bible systematically teaches theology. You've got to deal with election and predestination. It's in the Bible. Some of the things we look at at salvation are from God's perspective. Some of the things we look at are from our perspective. Like the emphasis in the Bible on repentance and faith. We're going to look at that in this class too. And we're going to talk about that too. But as a Christian, you need to wrestle with these issues. And the bottom line is, look at the Bible and wrestle with what the Bible says and seek to believe and base what you believe on what the Bible says. Let's pray. God, just give us wisdom and clarity of thought, a heart, Lord, to, like Paul, be zealous to see people saved, to repent, knowing that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but also recognizing that election is based on your mercy, not on anything in us or deserving in us. And God, help us to be thankful for our salvation through which nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The death won't separate us and suffering won't separate us. And it's because of your work, Lord, and we thank you. Thank you for your love for us and your mercy upon us. And God, as always, help us to be diligent to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. In Jesus' name, amen.